Welcome, you guys. So glad you made it to Riverbend. Thank you so much for coming. We um, just wanted to remind you that we are a Jesus church. That's who we are. That's our DNA. We're all about following after Jesus. I'm thrilled. This has really been one of the greatest privileges of my life has been uh, with my wife and family being able to um, start Riverbend and just see how God has worked already. But then, you know, I got to be honest, this time where we were sheltering in place and sort of had to pause all of our normal rhythms, we really felt like the Lord was centering us or recentering us as his church. I think he's doing that not just here at Riverbend, but really across the board. Um, and so we've been sort of exploring in these last couple of weeks since we've been able to gather um, just this idea that, okay, now that we're sort of getting back to the normal Sunday rhythm, what the church has done for thousands of years, what are the things that remain that really matter? What are the most essential things that the church really has to be focused on going forward? So for the future of the church, what will that future church be like? And will we get to be a part of that? So anyways, that's where we're headed. But I just wanted to say um, it really is an honor, privilege to be here, to be able to teach the scriptures. That It really is um, just such a gift that I get to do that and that you guys would be here to worship Jesus with me. It's, it's really special. So thank you so much. Um, and uh, so anyways, before we, we pray, why don't you guys open up with me um, we're going to be flipping all over the scriptures today, um, but why don't you first open up to Psalm 89? That's where we'll sort of pick it up, Psalm 89. Um, and uh, if you've been here these last couple of weeks, you're probably familiar with some of the language that we've been using. We've t- been talking about seeking the presence of God. We've been talking about a value that we've had since the beginning, but we're sort of, again, recentered um, now that we're kind of in this post-COVID moment that we want to be a church that is actually family. And uh, so these last couple of teachings, they've been a bit shorter. They've been uh, a bit light just simply because we're out here in the 90 degree weather and we are like kids are around and everything. And so we've been trying to keep things nice and short for you. However, I make no such promises today because we've got to do a lot of Bible work today. And I'm super This is what I live for right here. So I'm really excited about the Bible work we're about to do. Um, So hunker down with me. Really, hopefully, like this is not a passive moment. None of us are just sort of passively taking in the scriptures. We are wanting to internalize the truth about who Jesus is and what he says he's all about. So would you guys join me in sort of actively participating in this? And and let's get after it together, okay? So let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we just want to say thank you so much that you sent Jesus, and that has changed everything for us. This is actually the way that we define ourselves, our primary identity. Like how we describe ourselves is that we are Jesus, followers of Jesus, people, we're your children. And you've called us that by name because we've trusted in Jesus. And so now this life that we live, we want to follow you in every way possible, every way imaginable. We want you to show us the way of truth, and we want to follow in it, walk in it. So God, I pray for any of us who, um, as the scripture says, might be divided between two opinions, divided between two ways of living, or maybe three, or maybe four, that you would bring us to center right now, and that we would hear your voice really clearly, and we pray that you would speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today, you guys, we're talking about the way of love, and if you've been around um, Riverbend these last couple of weeks, you know that as a leadership team, while we were sheltering in place, the staff and elder team were praying very specifically about what God wanted us, to, wanted us to focus on or wants us to focus on in the coming months and years, which is why we have this idea for the, 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 the future of the church. And as we were praying, we really felt um, kind of across the board that God was calling us to step up in terms of loving our neighbors. This is something we feel really passionate about. Like if the church were gone tomorrow, would the broader community even really take notice? Would are we want to be known, like as the people of Jesus, we want to be known like Jesus is known, to be generous and loving to the point where the broader community really feels and really experiences it. We don't want to just be a little isolated group here in the mix. Um, but not actually touching the fabric of what makes our city our city and our culture our, our culture. So we already sort of had a pretty clear picture of that, let's say, in early April. We're still all kind of locked down. But then sort of mid-process, as we're asking the Lord about these things and pressing in a little bit deeper, um, mid-process, the death of George Floyd 
sparked a social outcry against racial violence. Now, if you are like, say, around 60 or older, maybe you have um, some memories of uh, the civil rights movement from the, from the 1960s, but for most of us, or a lot of us, this is the most significant movement for social change that we've really ever seen. And it was really interesting to me. In fact, it, it kind of woke me up a little bit that this command from Jesus to love our neighbors, it can be in the West, it can be seen as a very general catch-all blanket statement about doing good. But now that's not, nearly, that's not even close to the case. No, the, the, it, there is a very direct and very specific application in this cultural moment. We have to rise up because we have a role to play in making peace in a world that cannot see straight right now. And it's super, super important that we as the church are centered around what Jesus has to say about this, his perspective, his heart, and the scriptures. And, um, and so all of this is motivated by Jesus's ethic of love. And so that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be talking a bit about that. Before I launch in, though, I do want to first say uh, just a couple of quick disclaimers. Like, first of all, I realize that this is such a volatile conversation right now. If you have no idea, I'm kind of up here a little bit nervous because I know how deeply people feel about this issue. Um, and I've actually taught a couple of weeks on this prior to opening back up and just our weekly podcast and everything. And there was actually quite a bit of pushback. Um, and there was a lot of pushback. And so it's, it's important. We understand that this is a sort of a volatile issue. In fact, you know, some of the people that g- gave us good, honest feedback was, why do we have to be dealing about race issues at all? Can't we just come to church and talk about Jesus only? Some of you are just frankly fatigued by the conversation at this point because it's been a minute now and there's all kinds of drama on social media and news stories are being published every single day. Some of you are having a hard time um, just seeing this as anything other than a political issue, which of course it has political undertones and implications, but I would argue it's not just a political issue. And some of you, uh, rightfully so, think I may not be the right person to lead this conversation because I'm so white. <laughs> and, uh, and I first of all, I, I understand a lot of this. And by the way, I feel a lot of the same tension that you are feeling as well. But you guys, this is why it's so important. This is our centering vision. Someday in the hopefully not too distant future, the new heaven and the new earth, uh, when Jesus reigns in all of his glory and in his perfect peace, all of this toxicity and anxiety and brokenness and polarization will all be a thing of the past. And so everything is going to be as it should be. So we are the people of Jesus now in the present, which means that we carry on and pioneer Jesus's vision for peace now. And by the way, it's okay to get excited about this stuff. It's okay to say amen. It's okay to get... Actually, you know, when I, um, when I first started teaching, I was invited um, by my father-in-law to go down to Bolivia and I was sharing a message in Bolivia, and there's this group of like 2,000 or so pastors, and it's Latin culture. It's very, very different to our sort of stoic Western culture up here. And I remember like getting up in front of this massive group, and everything I'm saying is getting translated. So I say a sentence in English, and then they translate it into Spanish, and then literally there's a roar of applause, and Dios le bendiga, which means God bless you. And I just, there's something about that that gets me gets me really excited because if, if what we're talking about here is actually truly real and we actually believe it, it's going to provoke a little bit of excitement within us. And so no one would be mad if you started amening around here. Just do it. Just do it. Yes, come on, give it to me. Yeah, I love it. So despite being uncomfortable about this issue, we of all people on the planet, We need to be able to descend and cut through all of the noise of what's happening in the world around us and become a healing presence from within the toxic system in which we live. And by the Spirit, we can do this. And that's what the story of the Scriptures tells us. Second disclaimer is this. Uh, Please, 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 please listen to the words that I'm saying and please also pay attention to what I'm not saying. Because of all of the volatility, human nature right now is to essentially push whatever I'm about to say into one, uh, either side of an argument. 
is he an Antifa person or is he a Trump person? Like, or, or should I tweet him or should I vilify him and never come back again? Like, that is what is happening right now in our culture uh, at large. And, and here's what I have to say about that. It has nothing to do with me. This has everything to do with the importance of this conversation. This is too important for us to not appreciate the nuance and the complexity of what's happening in the world around us right now. So entire communities are being marginalized and pushed to the side. We owe it to them, I believe, to listen well and to care for and, uh, and, to, and, and to empathize with the pain of our brothers and sisters. So if I'm doing my job today, you'll hear very little of my opinion and we'll only be focusing, again, on what I said at the beginning, Jesus's heart and the truth from the scriptures on this. And hopefully that's going to completely reshape how we move into the world to be a healing presence in a toxic system. Okay, so uh, what we're doing today is a crash course on a biblical theology of justice. A crash course on a biblical theology of justice is critical. Um, and frankly, I should have done this years ago. If there's anything that I could go back and, and redo from the last three and a half years, it would be teaching on justice far before the death of George Floyd. And um, I, I feel responsible as your pastor that we weren't more on top of this as a central part of the full gospel um, before now. But here we are. We're going we're gonna to do our very best now. So the first element or stage or step in this biblical theology of justice is that Yahweh is a God of righteousness and justice. This is his nature. This is who he is. Um, I had you turn to Psalm 89 verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. So whenever and wherever God is reigning, there's righteousness and justice because that's his character. That's, this is what he's like. This is who he is. Psalm 97, we have it uh, behind me uh, as well. Psalm 97 says something very, very similar. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, when Moses is talking about the purpose of the law for the people of God to live out in the Old Testament, he says this, the rock, his word is perfect for all of his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, righteousness and upright is he. Just one more for good measure for right now. And that's this. He loves righteousness and justice. He has deep, passionate feelings about justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of God. So these are just a few examples of the ones that we could give, but this is the absolute most important thing that we get first. This is who God is. This is what he's like. This is an integral part of his character. He is a just and righteous God. And whether we know that or right or, or not, know that now or not is super important that we understand that we get this, that this is who God is, and then we're better off for it. So we have to understand what do these words righteousness and justice mean? We really have to get this right. So um, they're Hebrew words, the, the words sadika and mishpat, which are Hebrew words, and they mean righteousness and justice. And they, they occur all over the Hebrew scriptures together, like this. Uh, righteousness and justice. And so um, that word, what comes into our mind when we read the word mishpat or justice, uh, what comes into our mind is probably only about half right. So what we do in the West is we sort of picture the courtroom drama. God is the judge uh, and he's passing down judgment. He's slamming the gavel and there's a price to pay. That's kind of what we picture when we think about justice. And it's not that that's totally wrong, but that's not the idea of mishpat. It's much, much more holistic than that. Um, scholar Christopher Wright said this extremely well in his book, The Mission of God. Highly recommend you pick it up and read it. Uh, in the widest sense, justice means to put things right. To intervene in a situation that's wrong, oppressive, or out of control, and to fix it. This may include confronting wrongdoers on the one hand, and on the other hand, vindicating and delivering those who have been wronged. That is why the figures in the book of Judges have that name. They judged Israel by putting things right, militarily, religiously, legally, with Samuel being the model of all three. In the broadest terms, justice is what needs to be done in a given situation if people and circumstances are to be restored to conformity to righteousness. So justice is a qualitative set of actions, something that you do. As it is frequently used in biblical texts, justice is a call for action more than a principle of evaluation. Justice is an appeal for a response. Uh, justice as an appeal for a response means taking upon oneself the cause of those who are weak in their own defense. 
That is the biblical idea of mishpat. And this is why so many of the scriptures that are attached to this word uh, justice uh, is all actually about when you, when you really study the, the, what the text is actually saying, it's really about caring for the down and out and vindicating the oppressed. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner or the foreigner unheard of in, the, in ancient culture, giving him food and clothing. So he's vindicating and delivering the widow by taking kid care of her. When she, uh, when she has no one, uh, God is the one who's vindicating her and bringing her justice. Blessed is, uh, uh, Psalm 146, blessed is he who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourner. This is so unheard of. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. So when you read the word justice in the Bible, think God is making things right. In the broadest sense of the term, that's what the word justice means. And again, this is true wherever God reigns. Wherever God reigns, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Is anyone else excited about that but me? Come on. Yeah, it's good. So uh, now some of you might be wondering at this point uh, how this connects with a somewhat controversial topic uh, called social justice. And I would say, unfortunately, that term has gotten a bad rap by a lot of prominent American pastors in our generation. And we really don't have time to deconstruct all of that right now. But just to say this, I say all that to say this, that um, people who say that justice is not a part of our gospel work uh, just have a truncated theology of God, have a truncated theology of the church and of justice and of the full gospel. So doing justice is to be seen as an integral part of our gospel work. And I believe that this sort of, I, I haven't even really been able to pinpoint it myself. I've actually been quite frustrated over the past several months seeing churches literally position themselves away from doing justice because for some reason they do not think that is biblical. I'm only presenting to you about 7% of the biblical data on this. Doing justice is central to the story of the scriptures, which we're going to continue to see as we keep going along today. So what we need to do is we need to love our brothers and sisters who may feel differently, but we need to live our whole Bibles. Amen? We need to live our whole Bibles, believe that it's true, and follow after it. So this is what we need to do, and especially when it comes to justice for the marginalized. Again, in this moment, I think that's what's really significant. Now, if doing justice is to... Are you guys with me so far? Have you got, you got me? Okay, good. Just wanted to make sure I haven't lost you yet because that would be bad. <laughs> All right. So if doing justice is making things right, where did everything go wrong in the first place? Right? If we need justice, what went wrong in the first place where things are not right? Short answer is this. Society became corrupt at the fall. And a, a super important to understand God's justice is to understand the origin of everything where God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, chapter 1 of Genesis says, Let us make mankind, this is God uh, in the Trinity speaking about humans, let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Right? long sort of discourse about who we are to God. So uh, the creation narrative gives us a lot about the nature of humans, the nature of who we are, and also the nature of God. And then it says this, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So we need to comment on this. We need to understand this. We're going to understand justice. This is all king and queen language. God is essentially saying in a polemic against other creation uh, cosmologies of the ancient world, he's saying that God made all humans, all humans, all humans in his image as image bearers with intellect and authority and creativity to partner with him in his larger vision of causing the flourishing of all creation. That is what God is doing here in Genesis 1. So the idea of the cultural mandate is that we would, you and me, as image bearers, would harness the raw materials of planet Earth to create culture. 
in a way that everyone and everything will thrive as worship to God. This is the initial sort of command from Scripture, is that we would partner together and with God to harness the raw materials of earth in order to cause everyone and everything to flourish. So a marginalized community is not God's original vision. Racial discrimination, sexual exploitation, these are not a part of God's design for the earth. Also, squandering the earth's resources are also not a part of God's design either. This is all baked into our origin story. But after Adam and Eve, they, they take and eat the fruit, right? We have the fallout or the, the consequence of human rebellion. People begin devaluing other image bearers to get ahead. This is corruption. Image bearers devaluing other image bearers in order to get ahead. So, for example, Cain, the first offspring, overpowers his brother Abel and kills him in Genesis 4. A few generations later, Lamech marries multiple women and writes this super narcissistic poem about being vengeful. He says, you can't stop me from doing what I want. That's the sort of the idea. So the whole project of, of flourishing is, is devolving. Well, God's, God's design, his vision for flourishing, it's devolving in the first chapters of Genesis. Until Genesis chapter 6, it says this. Things have gotten really bad. Things have gotten really bad. The intentions of people's hearts are evil all the time. So what you have is God setting us up for success to flourish. For everyone to flourish, not just some, but that's not what's happening. What's going on is that over time, corruption in society breeds exploitation and marginalization of minority communities. And it's a spectrum, right? So Lamech, it's like completely obvious, right? He is sinister. It's sinister. He's overpowering women, raping them. It's awful, horrible, horrible corruption in just the first couple pages of the scriptures. But in other cases, it's much more difficult to see. There's an ambient corruption in society that people in power are taking part in and are complicit in. So instead of the materials of earth being used for the flourishing of all creation like God intended, the scales have been tipped to favor one group over another. And one group is marginalized while another group gets some kind and some form of privilege. Now, I am not an expert on this, nor am I an expert in sociology, but I have a hunch. And my hunch is that this is how racial discrimination takes hold in a culture like ours. The minority feels it intensely, intensely, but the majority can hardly even see that it, it exists. And so what ends up happening is that um, there is this imbalance and these, these diverging narratives that occur. And unless we're able to listen and to listen well, then we're not going to be able to work our way through this. And this is why I, I, I routinely challenge my white guy friends, because I'm a white guy, and I, th I feel like this is one place that I can't really speak to, is that our, uh, my white guy friends, I always challenge them to, to find somebody who they can, uh, they can really listen to and learn from before they start making assertions about the, the state of discrimination in our country. Because we, as white guys, are the last ones who are going to feel discrimination. And so, therefore, we need to find these sensible voices in the black community, in the Hispanic community, and we need to empathize with their pain. That's the beginning. That's the beginning. So, uh, so if the first couple chapters of the scriptures are any indication, we need justice. We need God to make things right. Right? That's our definition of justice. We need God to make things right. So, uh, not to get crazy philosophical here, but um, in a Machiavellian world, injustice is just a necessary part of the fabric. It's dog eat dog. It's all is fair in love and war. So the best that you can, the best that you can hope for, is to just uh, play the game and win. In a Machia which is sort of the, like the Western framework. In a Darwinian world, it's survival of the fittest. So the natural world is a cruel place. Good luck. Right? In a Buddhist world, the best you can hope for is to become indifferent or to detach from injustice. But not in God's world. That's not how it works. In Yahweh's world, this is not what injustice... Uh, injustice doesn't have the final world. In God's word, 
Injustice violates his design and he's not about to leave it that way. He has a plan to redeem it and his reign of righteousness and justice is coming soon. And this is absolutely paradoxical uh, from other ways of life. So next we have the, uh, the biblical reality, the next biblical reality, which uh, kind of flows out of that second one, which is how is God planning to restore justice? How does God restore it? Well, he makes a promise to a family. God makes a promise to a family. In Genesis 12, he calls Abram. Right? And this is probably commonplace for many of you who grew up in the church. We need to hear it with these eyes of justice. Okay, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I'm going to show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. You will be a blessing. You will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and never curse you. I'll curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So what's, being, what, what's going on here is God is choosing to partner with some of his image bearers, and he's going to engage with them personally, deeply, intimately, and he's going to ensure their success, which is a Bible word called blessing, so that for the express purpose that they will spread that justice to the rest of God's image bearers. That's the point of it. Blessed to be a blessing. All of the nations of the word, earth, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, as the scripture describes it. And that was and is still, by the way, the mission of God's people. Jesus in the New Testament, he reframes it for us in some very helpful and radical ways, which we get to here in a second. But this is what uh, the revelation of God's plan for redemption involves you receiving the presence of God, encountering God, and being blessed by God so that you would turn around and do good and do justice in the world around you. So the heritage of the family of God is making right what is wrong in the world. It's what it means to bear God's image in our moment. It is to make right what's wrong. So, um, so that involves things like upending the corrupt social systems that, uh, and, and pursuing God's vision for the flourishing of everyone, not just some of us. Right, And we see this, by the way, this isn't just me making assertions here. As you can see, it's deeply anchored in Scripture, but there's also a number of other examples as we go, continue to go through the Torah, the law. There are laws that are written to give honor to the sojourner or to, uh, to, to, to the foreigner, which uh, is completely unheard of in the, in, in the ancient culture. Also, you have equality to women, again, unheard of in ancient culture. Dignity to slaves, another thing that's completely unheard of in ancient culture. And so this is absolutely written into the story of the people of God is this pursuit of justice, making right what's wrong with the world. So how does Abraham, how does Abraham do? How does Abraham do with this new calling, this new commission, this, this new covenant that, that God has made with him? Abraham actually does okay. I mean, he, he, he could have done better. He wasn't perfect, but he actually does all, all right. Um, and, there's this, and there's this beautiful thread of righteousness and justice that is sort of woven throughout the entire story of the Hebrew scriptures and the people of Israel. Uh, for example, in the wisdom literature, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Proverbs 21 verse 3. But the story is filled with tons more corruption. It's not just, it's not only good, it's actually, there's a ton of corruption as well. Um, the people of God at several points throughout the several hundred year story completely lose the plot. So the blessing of God that God had intended to spread to the whole world was again being corrupted all over again. And so there's these ups and these downs in the story. And it gets so bad that the, 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 a lot of the prophets, which is a huge section of the Hebrew scriptures, is about correcting the people of God for ignoring the cries of the oppressed. Isaiah chapter one, it says this, stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Your assemblies are garbage. Gathering together, supposedly worshiping me, I'm not listening to it. In fact, in verse 15, it says, you stretch out your hands in prayer and I don't hear you. Why? Because you need to learn to do right. You need to seek justice. Defend the oppressed. This is a direct quote from Isaiah 117. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. So in other words, what God is saying is, hey, we had a covenant. We had a covenant. 
You can't come to me and worship me and pretend like everything is cool between us when you're not obeying me and you're not pleading the cause of the oppressed. In fact, you're tuning them out. You're not hearing them. Amos says something almost exactly the same. And the story of Jonah, we make it all about a kid's story for, about a whale. But the story of Jonah is so much more than a story about a whale. The story of Jonah is about a prophet who is consciously trying to maintain his racial bias against the Assyrians while still reluctantly obeying God by going to preach in Nineveh. And it doesn't work and he's miserable, dies miserable. Uh, but God, of course, gets his way. And then at the close of the Old Testament, if this was not enough, Malachi gives us the, the, the sort of the closing word, if you will, of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, this summary reminder. Matthew Ch- or Malachi, or Micah, excuse me, 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What does he require of you? Summary statement about what is God asking? To act justly. To act justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So you guys, um, these things kind of hit us a little bit hard. And uh, certainly the the point of this conversation is not that any of us would like wallow in shame or guilt over whatever. And certainly, certainly not. But some of the things that are written in the the, uh, prophets are written to get the attention of people who've lost the plot. And so... I'm not suggesting that you have, but I am suggesting that I think the church in America needs to be a part of doing justice. The church in America needs to be on the front lines of this. If anyone, if anyone should be a part of making the world a more whole place, man, God's anywhere God reigns, wherever God reigns, foundations, are righteousness and justice. So, man, we got to be those people. We got to be those people. And so when the story's at an all-time low and those, those, those rebukes from, from the prophets, there, by the way, there's way more too, Habakkuk and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and all of them. When the story's at an all-time low, the Savior shows up. Jesus shows up on the scene. And Jesus is the one who truly fulfills God's plan in the gospel. Amen? God is the one who does this. So racial inequality was rampant, way more probably than in our culture today. Uh, it was really bad in the, in the first century. Um, Israel was oppressed by Rome, and they, Rome had sort of dominated the whole known world at the time. Um, there were also the Herods who were ruling as well, and they were super corrupt and all of that. And then you had factions from within Israel. You had the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots and the Essenes, and they were all at odds and fighting uh, amongst themselves about, disagreeing sharply about how to deal with and how to relate to the hated Romans and whether or not they should reconcile or whether or not they should take up arms and all of the rest, right? So by this point, um, on top of that, the Israelites had this sort of religious pride they're looking down the noses of the Gentiles they call, who were pagans. And you also had the Samaritans as well who were also kind of in the mix. And they were segregated because of their ethnicity. So you've got all of these complex layers. We didn't even really get into it. But all of these super complex layers of, uh, of, of racial discrimination. It's a minefield of racial tension. Which kind of sounds feels a little bit similar to our moment. I could show you some pictures of what's going on where I grew up right now in Portland. And you can see we are living in such polarizing times. And what does Jesus do? Jesus uh, tiptoes around it. He sort of he ignores it. He, he doesn't have much to say about race issues. He doesn't want to rock the boat. He doesn't want to try and affect change for the marginalized groups. Right? This is a, a, a thousand percent wrong. A thousand percent wrong. A, like... I wish there was a stronger word than wrong for that. Jesus was hell-bent, dead set on upsetting and upending the corrupt power structures of the day. He pushed every single boundary. And in fact, these were the things that were, like this is why people called Jesus so reckless, because he's recklessly fighting the cause of the oppressed. 
because he has great empathy and great love and great passion for them. He loves them because they're in the Imago Dei. They're made in the image of God. And so he's recklessly on all fronts fighting the, the cause of the press. I'm just going to give you a couple super quick examples. Luke 7, Mark 7, John 4, Luke, uh, Luke 4. So Luke 7, Jesus is having dinner with the religious elites. They invite him over because they're trying to bait him and trick him in his theology. And a woman pushes her way in. She didn't belong there because of the social structures of the day, but she pushes her way into that gathering and she falls at Jesus' feet confessing her sin. And she's, it's super, and, and it's an embarrassing scene. When you read it, it's, it's embarrassing because she's crying and weeping, wailing loudly. She's kissing his feet. She's rubbing uh, her tears uh, into her hair and then cleaning Jesus' feet with it. And the elites are appalled by it that Jesus would even allow anything like this. And what Jesus does is this beautiful uh, theological jiu-jitsu. He just goes to town on them. He gives them this great, 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 just incredible parable. Uh, and I love it. I love it. And then he says this, you did not give me a kiss, calling out the religious elites. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Don't even have time to talk about all the landmines that Jesus is intentionally stepping on here. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Come on. This is such a beautiful story about how God is challenging the status quo through Jesus. A Syrophoenician woman of, of Mark chapter 7, she had two strikes against her. She's a, she's a woman. She's also a Gentile. And there was bad blood and racism going both directions between Jews and the Syrophoenicians. But she approaches Jesus because he, she believes that he can heal her. And so, this is, uh, uh, so, th- so she comes to Jesus, and the scripture says, Mark chapter 7, that Jesus is astonished at her faith. And so he heals her daughter. And then uh, the very next story, Jesus calls out, again, the religious elites for their lack of faith. And he, sa- he compares the two. He calls them whitewashed tombs, and he sends this woman away um, with what she asked for. John chapter 4, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. A Samaritan woman, right? Jesus goes out of her way, goes out of his way to go and restore her dignity, restore her value, restore her honor. Again, defying the conventions of his day in order to do it. Uh, Women and racial minorities are equal in the family of God. This is just, this this is basic Genesis 1 stuff. But since uh, corruption entered the world through the fall. Jesus is doing the heavy lifting and he's bringing equality. Uh, and so I love this. And again, I could mention way more stories uh, about Jesus turning over tables in a, a temple. And this was about discrimination and injustice against the poor. The anger at the Pharisees over using a, a, a person who was, uh, was disabled as a pawn in their theological arguments with each other. And of course, Jesus goes on telling many parables about unlikely heroes in the kingdom of God. And then there's, then there's this, if, if, if we need more convincing. This is what Jesus says, Matthew 23, 23. Calls them out. Calls them out. He says, you've been doing a super careful job to follow all of the little rules, but you've totally lost the plot. You've missed the heart of the gospel. You've missed the heart of the Torah. So he's literally, the, the, <laughs> what Jesus is doing here is he's sealing his fate, going to the cross, for sure. He's radically upending the corrupt social systems that favor the elite, and he's using, he's using his influence to do what? to do justice, to make things right. This is what Jesus is doing. He's taking his power and position as a rabbi who's got authority and power unlike anyone they've ever seen. And he's using all of that influence and all of that power in order to uh, 
to champion the cause of the oppressed, to, to, to do justice and to make it right. So um, we're running out of time here, but there's still a lot more that I want to say. Um, I have this problem every week. Uh, but anyway, so Luke, Luke chapter 4, here's, here's, a, here's another example. So Jesus is um, on, on his way. It's Sabbath. It's Saturday. They're going to synagogue. He's sort of the resident rabbi in Nazareth. And so it's time for there to be a teaching uh, in synagogue. And the way that they did it is they opened up a scroll. And then the, the, the teacher, the rabbi, would come forward, would read the scroll, and then he'd explain it. And what the, this is what the scripture says. Opens up to Isaiah. Spirit of the Lord's on me. He's anointed me. Proclaim good news to the poor. Proclaim freedom to prisoners. Recovery of sight for the blind. Set the oppressed free. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and went and sat down. Everyone's faces are on him. Everyone wants to know what he says next. Oh, by the way, he says, he says this, hey, what we just read, it's being fulfilled right now with me. I'm doing it. I'm setting the captives free. I'm, I am, I'm, I'm proclaiming freedom to the captives. I, I'm, I'm proclaiming good news to the poor, which of course was talking about salvation of their souls, but it also was talking about, hey, you know all of this injustice that you've been living in don't worry, I'm upending that, right? So this is a mic drop moment for Jesus. If you think I'm being intense today, which I have been known to be intense, uh, uh, this, is, this is like to the 10th degree. Jesus is going full bore. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. And he's not willing to say it in this context. And this story that I just read and also in the other stories that I read to you as well, there is a common theme. After Jesus is done, the leaders circle up in the parking lot afterwards and they go, we got to get rid of this guy. We got to, we, they, they begin plotting to kill him. They go, this is, this is, he is too radical here. He's messing with the structures that are in our favor. And he, so, uh, so he's got to go. And, and of course, these are one of the main drivers that actually got the, 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 the religious elites to partner with Rome to crucify Jesus. Um, and the reason why this is so important to Jesus is because everyone is in the Imago Dei, the Syrophoenician woman, the Samaritan woman, the man with the withered hand, the, the people in synagogue who have been uh, subjected to this, uh, this corrupt system. And so, uh, so Jesus is all about correcting that because he loves them. And these are people that are made in his image. So he, of course, goes to the cross for them. So this is why the reason I do, I, we're doing a lot of, uh, again, like I said, some, some biblical framework here. But the reason why we're doing this is because this, is, this gives us some directives here. We need to get this right. We need to join Jesus. And the alternative to joining Jesus in this or being passionate about this like Jesus is passionate about it is kind of scary. Because we have these examples that I read you and a bunch more. That the religious elites, the ones who refused to take Jesus at his word, were on the wrong side of history, the wrong side of the kingdom of God. And so this was uh, meant to be seen as, for us today and also back then, as a primary theme in the Bible. There are people in our culture who are crying out in pain. And yes, there are shots being fired in every direction. A lot of that is extremely unfair to a lot of people in this room. But I think it's incumbent on the Jesus followers in this room, or not in this room, in this amphitheater. It's incumbent on us who are mature in Jesus to take a few shots, if that's what it's required, to bring justice, to hear and to empathize with and to love like Jesus loved. Jesus, there were incredible stakes for Jesus on this. So the uh, last, last step of the crash course, I'm going over time. I apologize for that, but thank you for hanging. Are you guys still with me? Hanging with me? Okay. So, uh, so last step of the crash course, the, the closing image of the Bible. Closing image of the Bible is a restored multi-ethnic family of God uh, celebrating at his table. The closing image of the Bible, we have people from every tribe, tongue, nation, singing new songs to the king, embracing the lamb, the lion who was slain and is the anointed king. And we're all seated at his table. So if that's the closing image of the Bible, so this is God's plan from the beginning, 
if this is who Jesus is, if this is what the closing image of the Bible is, is saying, are we surprised? Are we surprised to learn that justice and racial reconciliation are major topics of teaching in the letters to the early church? This was an ongoing problem throughout the first century and persists even to today. And so a part of the, 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 the role or the, the part of the teaching, a significant part of the teaching actually of the New Testament letters is, is, is saying what Jesus was saying and turning people towards the end game, turning people towards the end. Listen, in the age to come, everything is going to be as it should be. Every tribe, tongue, and nation is going to be fully represented. There's going to be total and complete justice and righteousness, the foundation of God's throne. And so we are the people in the future. We are the people of the future in the present. We are the ones who are carrying this good gospel now. So it doesn't have to wait until then. Although there will always be brokenness in the world around us in the church of God. Does God reign here? Does he reign here? Of course he reigns here. And so if he reigns here, then we have this new uh, opportunity, this vision, this, op- this uh, responsibility even, if you, if you can put it like that, to pioneer Jesus' vision going forward. So Galatians, Paul, Paul uh, is uh, stirring the pot. By the way, Paul was a racist, like full-blown racist, before he came to know Jesus. And then he becomes one of the biggest advocates for racial equality in the church. So much so that in Galatians, he says that he confronts Peter, who's another apostle in the early church. He says, hey, Peter was acting one way with the Gentiles and the Jews showed up and then he alienated the Gentiles and then he started doing his own thing over here with the Jews. So he, he, he was kind of two-faced about it. So I called him on it. And that's what he says. And that leads up to the crescendo of the book of Galatians. Some people would say this is the center of Pauline theology. This is what scholars tell us. He says this, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you baptized in Christ have been clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. You're a part of that big family that God was starting in the very beginning when he started this redemption project, when he started this justice project. And you are heirs to that promise. Isn't that so beautiful? It's coming full circle. Jesus did his thing. He fulfilled it. And then he invites his people, you and me, to be pioneers of justice in the face of a culture that still has a lot of corruption in it. So I hope you're seeing the obvious call to action here. Obvious call to action is we, are, we need to get with it. Wherever God is reigning, righteousness, justice are the foundation. This is his church, not mine, not yours. It's not Ben's church. It's God's church. It's not a church of Western culture. It's not a, this is Jesus' church. And since this is Jesus' church, we don't get to decide what the values are. He does. And this, I gave you... 7 to 10% of the biblical data on this. There's tons more. This is a central part of the gospel. So we see a pattern that Jesus gives us. And this is hard. This is a tricky moment that we're living in. So what we need is we need to hold fast to the simple things that Jesus gives us. Not responsible for necessarily the picket lines or whatever, but we are responsible for how we treat the ones that we're with and seeking to upend the corrupt social systems that devalue and diminish brothers and sisters of color. And so we take the pattern from Jesus. And that pattern is this. He's drawn to the marginalized. He's drawn to them like moth to a flame because he cares for them, deeply loves them. Things have gone horribly wrong. So Jesus is running towards it, not away from it. He's drawn to the marginalized. He's constantly crossing socio-cultural boundaries and moving towards the people who are on the outs, right? So human nature is to be tribalistic. And by tribalistic, what I mean by that is that we, human nature is not like your fault. But we tend to move towards groups that we are most comfortable in or that we're, we feel the safest, least threatened by. So what we end up doing is finding these little 
little cells where we all think the same and act the same and dress the same and talk the same. It's the group that's going to protect our group identity at all costs. This is human nature is kind of what we do. But Jesus is dismantling that tribalism. And instead what he's doing is he's crossing those sociocultural, socioeconomic boundaries in order to celebrate the humanity and to champion the faith of the misunderstood minority. He's doing it. He's, he's pioneering it, and, he's, and in his time, he's the only one who's doing it, and it gets him into all kinds of hot water. If we're going to be the ones doing justice, if we're going to pay attention to what Jesus is talking about here, we need to be willing to venture outside our comfort zone. That's step one, in order to go towards and take the risk of being rejected. Remember, this was just part and parcel of it. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and he got himself into a ton of trouble. And part of this is just us taking a step towards crossing a sociocultural or socioeconomic boundary so that we can get close enough to these people who are humans made in the image of God to appreciate their humanity and to champion their faith. And if we're unwilling to do that, if we're unwilling to do that, I don't think we can do biblical justice. I just don't think we can do it. So that's the first thing that Jesus did. He, he's drawn as moth to a flame to, to the marginalized. Uh, second, he, he listens to their story. Okay, this is a volatile talk. I, I, we knew that going in. We were prepared for that, right? Um, and when we listen in a time like right now, especially in our cultural moment with social media, we have a hard time listening well. But what we do listen to is we listen for people to slam the other people who infuriated us on Twitter this week. That's what we do. We pay close attention to the voices of people who we already agree with. We don't have time for that anymore. We don't have time for that anymore. We have to get this right, you guys. We have to get this right. We have to be willing to listen to people that we disagree with. Bob Goff, um, he said something to this effect. He said, how we treat the people we disagree with most is uh, a report card on what we've learned about love. And I love that. I love that. We, we, we shouldn't be looking for voices that vindicate our opinions. We should be seeking to build common ground with people that we don't understand yet. So when it comes to doing justice, we need to listen carefully enough to hear the genuine cries of the oppressed groups in our society. Uh, and again, you know, not to put a pressure on the white guys in the amphitheater right now, but quite honestly, guys, we, we've, we've got some listening to do. We've got some listening to do. I've had to in a lot of conversations since the first couple teachings I've given on this, I've had to correct a lot of white brothers who are saying, I'm not racist. I'm not white privileged. Don't tell me that. I'm just going, you're not listening. No one's trying to pin you against the wall. No one's trying to call you racist. Listen to the genuine cries of the people who are made in the image of God who are just playing, they're just in pain right now. And you, it might not make a ton of sense to you. In fact, that's the point. We can't identify with the felt experience of people who have been victimized by racial bias over the course of their life. We, uh, I can't. I should say I can't. Some of you can't. So we need to do our part to listen well, to empathize with someone's pain. And just listen well. You don't have to agree with all of the things that are said. You don't have to agree with solutions that are being proposed. You don't have to do that. But... It is incumbent on us as, uh, as the church to listen well and to create a forum to listen. And what this means, in my view, is that we um, have a long-form conversation, not on social media, face-to-face. And we ask lots of questions with zero defensiveness. I think that that is the starting point to creating a forum to listen. Long-form conversation, asking lots of questions, and zero defensiveness. Uh, the other thing Jesus does, he empathizes with their pain. Empathizes with their pain. Jesus empathizes with us, too. Our weakness, our sin. And empathy is this, this, this superpower that my wife has. Grace has this superpower. It's, it's so powerful. Empathy is a humanizing act. It humanizes and honors um, and restores dignity that's been lost through corruption. And it's an important thing to do. And there's, again, like I said, there's a ton of dirty pain going every direction in this right now. 
By dirty pain, I mean that there's, everyone's getting caught in the crossfire. People are being hurt by everyone. I'm not making statements about what's happening globally. I'm just making statements about what I sincerely believe the scripture is teaching us. Which is that we, we need to, if we consider ourselves the people of Jesus, if we could be mature enough to take a few shots, if that's what's required, in order to hear and to empathize with people who have been marginalized and are on the outs. Are you guys with me on that? He, he, Jesus uh, confronts the corrupt powers. This is a part of justice. He confronts the corrupt powers full force on their behalf. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. He used his considerable influence to correct the imbalance of power and to give a voice to people who don't have one. And in order for the real conversation to happen, I think there needs to be some honest introspection. This is a long journey, but honest introspection about what in our culture, and when I say our culture, I mean the culture of the church. What needs to happen in our culture to root out this, if there's any corruption that exists in, in, in the culture of the church at large. Um, and that might mean uh, doing the unpopular thing. Uh, this is kind of unpopular, what we're, what we're doing right now. And then, of course, Jesus died for them. And this is the second to the last. Jesus, at great personal expense to himself, willingly died for sin. This is an equalizer. We all, privileged or not, marginalized or not, we all need Jesus to go to the cross for us and die for our sins. And it's beautiful. And Jesus fulfilled his mission. He didn't shrink back. When it required action, Jesus took it without hesitation. And so when we do justice, we need to do it. Not say nice things about it. We need to do justice. And uh, so this, this means taking action. And um, as much as I would like to give you some ideas on that, I think it's actually a matter of personal responsibility. I can't assume you agree with me here. I can't assume that your felt experience is mine. But I think there's a lot of biblical stuff for us to wade, th wade through. And I think it's, we each have an individual responsibility to pray this stuff in, pray this stuff through. And hopefully what we're going to get is a clear action step in order to really love well in the wake of a really tragic time in our churches, in the history of our world, but also in the church. And then this is the last thing. Jesus invites them into, our, into their family, into his family. So Jesus is all about family. We talked about it last week. This is him. This is who he is. When Jesus accepts you, it's not a friend request on Facebook. He adopts you into the family. And he gives you an inheritance. There is a familial quality to uh, the kingdom of God. And so this is what Jesus does. And so for us to do justice means to elevate the ones that have been dishonored and to make sure that they they not just know and understand in an intellectual ascent kind of a way, but feel in themselves. Be able to internalize that they are children of God as well. Uh, and I pray that all of this can be heard through that lens of Jesus' ethic of love. Sometimes it's a general wide category of just doing good. In this moment, I believe it's more than that. I believe it's a very specific call to action for the people of Jesus to do some justice, to do to make things right by the power of the Spirit. Amen? All right. Let's stand together. And when you came, um, you should have received the bread and the cup. And I feel like I need to say something. It's been said to me a number of times, and my wife is really good about this, that I can be a passionate person. And sometimes that passion might actually seem like something other than just an excitement for the kingdom of God. So if what you heard today was anger, frustration, or guilt, or shame, I apologize, and that's not my heart, and really, really not my heart. And it would be a huge I'd be doing a huge disservice if you walked out of here with that impression. We can do better. We need to do better. This is important that we get this right. As the people of Jesus, this, the time is now. It's here. 
So if you hear me getting loud and worked up, (laughs) that's really because I love this. I love Jesus. I love the kingdom. I love his church. And it's critically important that we step into these things. If you have any questions about this position that we've taken and what it might mean, um, I want to make myself available after the gathering. um, And you can ask me any question you'd like. Um, also, Greg, um, who's one of our elders, is also here tonight. He volunteered to also come up here. So we'll, if you have questions, all the hard questions, go to Greg. Send me the, <laughs> send me the easy ones, okay? No, I'm kidding. Uh, uh, but no, Greg has graciously uh, said that he would stick around after as well um, to engage with you at, 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 at any level. And so there's no shame or guilt. We're all in process here learning. And so, um, yeah, if th- that would be helpful, we're here. Um, and let's, uh, let's pray, and we're going to take the bread and the cup together because this is what uh, Jesus, uh, we're all on equal footing before Jesus at the cross.